Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. So why don't we start at the beginning with Rub It In? Sure. Which, first, tell me about the memoir. Yeah, my memoir is called Permission to Fly. That title came because Permission to Fly is what my mother gave me early on. She set me and my rampant curiosity loose to explore, make mistakes. And when I did make mistakes, she did not rescue me. (laughs) Instead, she convinced me that I could rescue myself. I fell for that. I tried everything that interested me. And this assurance that I could rescue myself was the key to figuring out just who the hell I was, because I really did. I tried a lot of things. I mean, I hitchhiked completely around the United States, 7,500 miles east coast, west coast, north, south, Uh, worked on ranch, picked up by every single kind of person you could conceivably imagine, gypsies, drunk people. But I also had jobs starting when I was very young, you know, like eight years old. I I applied for jobs and uh, they wouldn't take me because they they would get arrested, they said. But I started selling things door to door and I I wanted my own money. I wanted to buy baseball cards and streamers for my bike and eclairs, which I happen to love. And I, I hated to ask for money, so it was much more pleasant to have my own. So these products, which were available on the back of comics. The first one was uh, a salve, you know, like for, you know, rashes and stuff. And I I thought, well, you know, who the hell is going to buy this stuff? But it turned out everybody wanted this stuff or something. It's called Cloverine Salve. So I sold them door to door. The deal was that you'd sell, I think, 12, and then you'd send a portion of the money back to them. They'd send you another 12 if you wanted them. But I also sold greeting cards and and then later on, I sold bedroom slippers door to door, mowed every yard, vacuumed every swimming pool, you know, washed every car, drove people to the airport or, you know, whatever they were. Benny Goodman's do. yard. Yeah, Benny right. Goodman. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because, yes, I, my my mom moved to a rural part of Connecticut during the war when my dad was gone because the rents were cheap. And she was a writer, so she didn't have to be in an office every day, but she did have to have easy access to New York City. So this was about an hour from New York. And initially the neighborhood was, you know, plumbers and carpenters and kind of normal people like us. But after the war, when America began getting richer and more prosperous, wealthy people from New York City began to buy summer houses, weekend houses all around us. And these new people wanted somebody else to mow their lawn, wash their cars, et cetera. So I started knocking on doors. And one of the doors I knocked on was that of Benny Goodman, who, you know, at the time is the most famous clarinetist in the world. And what I learned from him, hard to put a value on, but the very first morning I went to work there, I was kneeling in a bed of roses, weeding, and over the top of the apple trees came the sound of a clarinet playing musical scales just... 
over and over and over. And every day I went to work there, that was what I heard. I filed away the fact that the most famous clarinetist in the world practiced every day. So there were an enormous number of lessons over the years from him, including the way he treated me when I made mistakes and so on. And I tried to be half that wise raising our boys. We had three boys. So you were very industrious and entrepreneurial uh, from the age of eight, frankly, and, you know, 12 and 14 working, you know, mowing lawns in, in the neighborhood, selling stuff door to door. And you got in the fish taco business with cheeky fish tacos. <laughs> and oh, the, my God. And the store burns down yeah. and, you're, and you're bankrupt. Yeah. And... You decide to become a songwriter. Well, I, I had wanted to become a songwriter. When I was going to college, I think I was 20 or 21, I can't remember which, but I was painting a house one summer and all my friends were interning for big companies, which they were very excited about. You know, Merrill Lynch, Burlington Mills was one. and American Can. <laughs> American Can, yeah. They, they were working for these giant companies and they couldn't wait to go to work there. And I thought, those companies would hate me and I wouldn't like working there. So what am I going to do? Because the track seemed fairly beaten to these companies and I wasn't living near anybody else who really did anything differently. Of course, I saw Benny Goodman, but I never in my whole time working for him, it never, ever crossed my mind that I would ever earn nickel one in the music business, not one second. But this summer... I had my little radio and it played this beautiful song called Abilene. I don't know if you know it, but Abilene, Abilene, prettiest town I've ever seen. I thought, that is so wonderful. I wonder if I could write a song because I was addicted to songs since I was little. I mean, I loved, you know, Nat King Cole and Tony Bennett and all these people. And then it segued into rock and roll and you know, suddenly Jerry Lee Lewis and, you know, the, the platters, do, 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 songs like that, you know, and Elvis. And I thought, God, it's the greatest thing going. But honestly, the idea of ever writing a song never crossed my mind until I was 20 or 21, however well. I didn't have an instrument or anything. But this summer I just said, you know, I'm going to write a song. And I wrote one. And because I was near New York, I turned over my Elvis Presley records and it led me to a company called Hill and Range, which happened to be based in New York. And I, I just I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go there, but I got to have something to take them to show them this song. So there was a bar on Broadway called the Turf Bar. It was inhabited by music people, songwriters, record producers, singers, blah, blah. It was also a 10 minute ride from my college. So I went down there one day and didn't have the guts to go in the turf bar to inquire what the hell I do with my song. But at the third day, I went in, and there were these guys in there. It was about three in the afternoon. There were only two people in there. There were these real handsome, very cool-looking black guys, and they saw me coming a mile away because I was this you know white kid with corduroys and button-down shirt and all that. You know, God almighty, you know? And so... I asked them if they knew where I could make a demo because I didn't play an instrument and need to hire people. And the, the guy says, uh, does that song have music? And I said, yeah. And he said, how it got music? You don't play nothing. I said, well, I just sing it. The guy says, in the air? And I said, yeah. 
And he thought that was hysterical, but he told me where to go to make, make my demo. So for about 80 bucks, I made a recording of this and they gave me a disc with my name on it, title of the song. Swagger. Swagger, yep. And I took it to Hill and Range, who as close to Elvis as I could get because they were his publisher on so many songs. And I just started there. The guy didn't love the song or anything, but it, it was my introduction. The guy was so cool. He had on a white shirt and blue jeans with his sleeves rolled up. And I thought, I love this guy. This is the business for me. You know, this is so much cooler than any of the the guys at the time that I saw riding the train into New York in their suits and stuff. And I thought, that's great for them, but it's not great for me. And this guy is up my alley and, and I loved him. And, and that was Milton? No, <laughs> you got a good memory. Uh, this guy's name was Erwin Schuster. He literally became the most famous pop music publisher in America. He was on his way to becoming that, but he didn't know it. And I didn't know it, of course. But he became a great friend. And eventually, many years later, he did become my publisher. So anyway, I loved everything about the actual marketing of the song. I loved taking my songs to people. I didn't get depressed when they turned it off. I just thought, well, you know, it's my job to bring them songs they like. It's not their job to like my song. So I just got into that mode and I, I loved it. During the time that I had Cheekies, I was flying to Nashville. I, I flew to Nashville just this one day to find Ray Stevens, who I thought was the most eclectic music guy I could think of at the time. He, he loved, you know, rock music, gospel music, country music. There was nothing that was out of his range of ears, you know, if I could play him anything. If he didn't like it, I thought, well, this guy's as eclectic as I get. So if I could ever be his gopher or have him be my teacher, that would just be the greatest thing going. So flew to Nashville, took a taxi to his office, had my little guitar, which my wife gave me when we got married, and just went in and asked if I could play a few songs. And by some miracle, he said, yeah, you can play them. So I played a few songs. And he said, if you'll write me one song that I like as much as this song you just played me, I'll record you. And I was not dying to be a recording artist at all because I'm not a performer. I'm, you know, I don't like to go out and sing. But I would do anything not to be in my fish and chips place, in my fish tacos place. So I went home and I just kept sending him songs. And after about nine months of sending him songs constantly and, and having him say, oh, that's almost, or that's a good B-side, or I like it, but you kind of lost me there in the third line, or whatever the things he would say. One day, we were in our backyard, and people were putting suntan lotion on each other, and somebody said, rub it in, and I had my guitar there, and I just said, rub it in, rub it in. My wife popped her head up, and she said, has that already been a hit? And I said, I don't think so. And she said, well, that sounds like a hit to me. Went, put her head back down, and I wrote this song, Rub It In, and it just sounded great, like from the minute, you know, that day it was finished. And I sent it to Ray, and he called up at the fish place and said, this is a smash, come down here and we'll record it. And we did, and that record did actually become a hit in a few big cities like Houston, but by the time it had proven itself and was ready to spread elsewhere, it was no longer summer. <laughs> People in November didn't really want to be playing a, a beach song. So I started using my version as a demo, and I played it for the producer of a guy named Billy Crash Craddock, who was having big hits at the time. And 
the producer, loved it. And it became a, a number one country record and a top 20 pop record. And and then later, this commercial for Glade plug-ins, plug it in, plug it in. So that song has been kind of a little miracle in our family. But it all started in our backyard in Connecticut. So it's, you just never know where things are going to start or happen. So first recorded in 1971 by you. Yes. In Ray Stevens' office, I guess. It, it was at a studio, very famous studio at the time called Clement Studios, owned by Jack Clement, who a very famous guy. He actually, his career went way back, but among those many things that he did was he engineered a whole lot of shaking for Jerry Lee Lewis. That's pretty incredible. And did you meet and work with Cowboy Jack? I, I knew him, but no. He owned the studio, but he didn't run it or anything. And Ray Stevens, also in the Songwriter Hall of Fame with you. Yeah. Well, me with him, actually. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean. And everybody's equal who's it. Well, I don't, I don't know about that. I mean, you think of these people like Chuck Berry or Hank Williams. Think, oh, my God. You know, not even close. But the, the idea that, you know, could be even in the same breath as one of those people is sort of impossible. But not afraid of the novelty song, Ray. You know, oh, God. Uh, I the mean, streak and, sure. and Ahab the Arab. And, oh, yeah. And not just about novelty. No, because, I mean, everything is beautiful. That's as good as it gets. I mean, that's a fabulous. You know, that was the thing that made me go to him. Going to him was not my idea. One day I left my fish taco place and went into New York because I was just so desperate to try to get somewhere. And I went to a, a guy who had been a longtime friend and I told him that I was looking for an eclectic ear somewhere. And he said, well, how about Ray Stevens? And, and honestly, that was just the most light bulb idea. I went from his office down to a payphone on Broadway or 7th Avenue, whatever, and called Ray Stevens' office and asked if he was going to be there the next couple of days. And the woman said, yeah, he will. So the next morning I went, got on the plane and went down there and was lucky enough to get to see him. It was such a great choice because he is so smart. I mean, I would play my song 20 seconds maybe afterwards. He would give me his comment and it would be so helpful. Just that 20 seconds, no on and on and on, just, you know. And sometimes it would just be a shrug that was sort of said, I can't help you there, I don't know, you know. <laughs> it doesn't do anything for me. But once in a blue moon, he would say, Lang, that is a smash. And when that happened, I thought, he's right, and anyone I play it for who doesn't agree is wrong. <laughs> so I would just keep playing it. I gradually got to anticipate what he was going to say, you know. I mean, I mean, this is an interesting, when we first moved there, I had a song that had the word escalator in it. So this is like 1972. He said, Lang, take my word for it. Most people have never been on an escalator. They have no idea what you're talking about. Say something else. So that was an example of, of someone with a more culturally eclectic palate, you know, or ear that helped me just use the simplest, most basic words that added either description or color or, or information, but didn't require any particular locale or whatever. They just, all you had to be was a human being. Rebidin's recorded by you in 71. It makes a, some regional progress. You use it as a demo and I love the Billy Crash Craddock video that the outfit he's wearing in his... Uh, oh, yeah. I never even saw it. I uh, didn't know there's a video. Oh, no. It's, it's yeah. on YouTube. But he seemed like a very charismatic top of the industry at the time. And he was a lovely person. And I think he had been a drywall guy. 
and his manager, who is a brilliant guy named Dale Morris, who subsequently managed Alabama and now manages Kenny Chesney, you know, was the manager at the time. And Dale is a lifelong friend. I mean, we are like brother and brother still today. He's a little older than me, but we're kind of the same, the same era. It's the early 70s. I know that the lyrics itself have a certain risque feel at the time. I don't know yeah. if, you know, today people would say the yeah, same yeah, thing. Yeah. But did you have a lot of pushback on that? No, really, I didn't. I, the demo that I used, which really was a record, had been produced by Ray Stevens, and it is a fantastic record. I mean, Ray's a brilliant producer, and he did background parts and blah, blah. And pushback came where people said, that doesn't sound country to me. You know, I agree, because it really didn't. But Billy Crash Craddock was recording things that really not that country either. But when you added fiddles and steel guitar and his southern accent and so, it, it becomes, you know, country. And so I never had anyone who, who said it was too sexy or too what, except my mother-in-law. <laughs> my mother-in-law said, that's dirty. And I thought, no, it really, it's just cuddly. It's really not dirty. You use the word sacriliac yeah. in the song or as a rhyme, as I recall. Yeah. Put it on my back and my sacriliac and a dab on my chinny-chin-chin. It's funny. In my record, I mispronounced it. I, instead of saying sacroiliac, I said sacroliliac, you know, but it stayed and it's fine. Is that a part of the body? I think it's the very bottom of your back. Yeah, yeah. Sacroiliac, yeah. Couldn't believe when I come up with that. Rhyme is a miracle. But there was no controversy about the sexiness of the lyric. Not that I ever heard. I, you know, people would say it's cute or it's sexy or something like that, but I don't think anybody didn't play it. I may be mistaken. I don't know. But it went to number one on the country charts. Yeah. And so did you have a number one party? No. They didn't do them back then? <laughs> no. <laughs> my number one party was to go home and actually be able to pay for my hamburgers. <laughs> You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 